Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. And on tonight's show, really Philip Peck Van Dyke of FN Arena shares with us the two or three stocks he likes right now. Or should we heed the old market maxim, sell in May and go away, come back on St. Ledger's Day? We'll see if Rudy supports that old maxim. The CEO of EML Payments, Tom Cregan, on why the market lifted its share price 17% in a week, two weeks ago. We'll ask Tom the reasons for that. And then Paul Miliotis explains why M Square Capital is a fixed income alternative for those looking for a bit better return than term deposits. Ying Yi and Cheng of Coolabar Capital, a 24 gold carat expert on interest rates, tells us whether our Reserve Bank can really keep interest rates at these low levels until 2024. Do you really believe that? Really? That's the show, so let's go and kick off with Rudy Philippek Van Dyke of FN Arena. Welcome to the program, Rudy. Well, Peter, as, as always, it's a great pleasure to be here. I was thinking as I was uh, driving into work today, and I, was, I knew I was going to be interviewing you, I thought probably for nearly at least the 10 years of the, my program on Sky Business, we would once a year talk about, should we sell in May and go away? And uh, <laughs> you and I have tossed that around at least well, at least eight years, but maybe even 10 years. Yes. And so, so I can't help it. We, we're, May is getting closer. Yes. What, do you re- what do you reckon this year, Rudy? Is this going to be a selling May and go away year or not? Oh, I mean, uh, it's, I mean let, let, let me answer that question by, uh, by referring back to my own research, which I, which I did a couple of times in, in that mm. matter. Is, yeah. it's, it works in, in, in some years, but it's, it's far from a guaranteed strategy. So and there are years when it simply doesn't work. Um, no, I knew. I do know that um, maybe the fact that the share market has uh, has performed so strongly so far, that might sometimes be an indication that we might be due for a pause, and maybe come May, that's uh, that's what the market uh, thinks uh, we, we should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if only because I mean, in the U.S., as you as you know very well, in the U.S. we're, we're doing uh, all time highs every day now, and Australia. If we if we keep on going, uh, it won't be far off either here. Mm. Um, so maybe maybe if we can rely on history, maybe it is time for a little bit of a pause uh, come May. Yeah. Now, and we should kind of explain that historically, you know, before the age of the internet, a lot of stockbrokers and investors would clear their books, go on holidays, mm. and then come back and start working again. So they wanted to lock in their profit and make sure they they're able to see what their investments were doing because when they went off to their beach holidays or their skiing holidays, whatever, whatever they did, they just couldn't actually access the market, which they can nowadays. Yes. But, but why don't we just say, ask this question then. Um, if you saw the market sell off, mm-hmm. given the, 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 the likely strength of the economic boom over this year and definitely next year, given all the spending and the very low interest rates, would you see that as a buying opportunity, particularly if really good companies did get sold off you know, in a May and sell, sell and go away situation? Well, the obvious answer is, of course, yes. Um, maybe the added commentary here is that I, I picked up from a few strategy reports recently 
that so, some some uh, people are out there advocating for people to have a little bit of cash on the side mm. because if the market does sell off that's and they are thinking it might be to the terms of five seven percent something like that yeah. they, they would recommend adding aggressively into into shares that fall mm. uh, that probably obviously i i think it's with the caveat that we, we we do not want too much trouble from the bond market here and that that could cause some trouble but assuming that that doesn't cause too much trouble your, your statement has to be correct that uh, if this if this economic recovery continues then the share market should all else being equal um, should end up higher even though valuations are, are far from cheap but the recovery should should take care of that yeah and, and interest rates are just so low you and I you know we would always compare what are the interest rates telling us we should do and therefore are stocks attractive or not and that is unbelievably low Really, I interviewed um, Hamish Douglas earlier this week, mm. and and what he said to me was he is worried about um, some U.S. tech stocks like Tesla, which is not necessarily a tech stock, but it's a high flying growth stock, mm. and uh, and and the, and Bitcoin that they are just so in his mind so overpriced, they had that sort of dot-com bus feel about them and that could rattle the market and he, he made the point he said, I, I, I like tech stocks microsoft is my biggest holding but there are just some kinds of tech stocks that their valuations seem ridiculous and they could rattle the market is there do you, do you agree with that yeah. possibility yes absolutely um i think central bankers are carefully watching what's happening with cryptocurrencies yeah. uh, because there's 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 ever more money going in there and, um, and and anecdotally, I pick up that uh, ever more money is going in there, also from SMSFs, from retail investors. Um, I mean, that's how we humans operate. We, if something keeps on going up, we, we really think we should be part part of the party, basically. And and there's an argument to be made that the further that goes on, that if it, at some stage if it does deflate, it will have actually will have a profound impact. Uh, it might actually have an economic impact at some stage because so much money goes lost. Um, having said so, I mean, um, predicting these things is, is incredibly difficult. And, um, and I mean, I, will, I remember the, the, the crazy, hazy days of the late 90s. Uh, some people were predicting in, in 96 that it was, it was all too heated and overvalued. And we, we had to wait until March 2000 before it finally deflated. So, I mean, the, probably the, the best statement I came across recently was that... Um, a bubble makes a fool out of all of us, either during the bubble or after the bubble. Mm. So either you look a fool when you don't participate and afterwards when it deflates, you look a fool because you did participate. Yeah, that's absolutely true. All right, mate, let's go. I asked you to, to tell us two or three stocks that you do like. And mm. with all those caveats around uh, <laughs> what might happen, there could be sell-offs. And then ultimately, it's good to have stocks that can weather you've always been an all-weather stocks kind of mm. guy yes. so so what, what are the two or three stocks that you think look like good value now well i'm i'm i'm, I'm having a little bit of a different approach peter I, I heard you saying that you when you drove to the studio you were thinking about me and i thought well that's quite funny because i was earlier thinking that when i was on your show a couple of times i used to talk about the automobile sector in australia and it's mm. a sector i, I very much like so, but before we go there, I like to throw in three stocks, which I believe that if you have a three to five year view, that they will be significantly higher than where they are today. Yeah. And I think those stocks are CSL, they are Iris, and they are Hub24. 
Um, none of them is related to the automobile, automobile sector. Um, I'm personally quite a fan of the automobile sector. Of course, there are um, a lot of challenges coming towards that sector. It has had some challenging periods in the terms that there were no sales of new cars for a very long time. Um, but that sector is really uh, reliving now and recovering very strongly. And some stocks actually of some companies actually haven't, haven't really had a, a tough time in that sector. One stock that has particularly done very, very well is uh, the old AP Eagles, nowadays called Eagles Automotive. Now that one I wouldn't chase here, but there are stocks, for example, like a Babcor, which is a very long-term favorite of mine, yep. and which, which I noticed, which is finally getting some traction here. And I think investors should still not be not be afraid to get on board. There is still, I think, a lot more to come there. Um, similarly, there is also Super Retail, which is essentially a, a, a competitor of Pepcor. Obviously, there's, there's more to Super Retail than simply cars, but uh, it is a very important uh, factor in that business. And Super Retail actually offers a, a very high dividend yield here because the share price is quite cheaply priced. And I think that the market is mispricing super retail here. Uh, too afraid that uh, some of the parts of the business have done well last year and can't repeat that this year. Um, and then obviously in the same sector, you can also argue that there's still an ARB Corp, which has done really, really well, but um, continues to churn out uh, very strong growth numbers. And if I believe the analysts, they think there's, there's still more to come there. And you also have a company like GUD Holdings, for example, which is which is equally in the in the auto parts. Um, now, Rudy, that last one again was GUD. Um, GUD, yeah, GUD, so, yeah. Sometimes pronounced like God. God, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there is, if you are a little bit more speculative, there is a company in that sector which is called AMA Group. Hmm. And uh, they have had, uh, they lost their way a little bit over the past 18 months or so. Uh, and the share price reflects that. So if, if you take a punt that, that sooner or later they will get it right again, um, that that share price could easily double. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's a great collection of um, car related um, stocks. Mm. And it is interesting, mate, even the, the second hand dealing data, which we never used to look at before. It's really on, on the rise because it's very hard to get new cars at the moment because of the coronavirus. So if people hold secondhand cars, companies like Babcorp that service cars, it, it's going to be sure you well positioned at least for a couple of years. Absolutely. But really, let's go back to your first three. The CSL, totally agree with you. What was mm. the second? What was the second one? Second was Iris. Iris, yes. Now, Iris. A, a, a good friend of mine is now the, the COO of Iris. Mm. Um, Michael Blomfield, really smart guy. Uh, and this has been a great company in the past, kind, yes. of, kind of lost its way. Why do you like it now? Um, it's, it's very cheaply priced. And if you look at the price chart, you'll see it has, it has not recovered from, uh, from, from 2020, basically. It's actually lower now than it was last year. Um, my belief is that is because of the UK economy. Uh, the UK economy mm -hmm. is, is a very important part of the business. And of course, when Boris Johnson doesn't get his act together, that, that weighs on, stock, on share prices here. Mm. But the UK is now doing well with, um, with, with the vaccine program rollout, etc. Um, I think that's the reason why Iris recently, uh, the share price has, has started picking up. And I would say the same thing as with Babco, the fact that the share price is already moving upwards mm. should not deter investors from getting on board because there should be a lot more valuation 
uh, to be had from, from that share price. Now, finally, Hub24, for people yes. who don't know what Hub24 does, could, could you explain that and tell me why you like it? Yes, it's probably, people are probably more familiar with net wealth, um, which, which got, attracts a lot more uh, attention from, from investors, but it's actually a financial platform where people go on and they can allocate their money towards fund management and, and, and towards ETFs and the likes. Um, so, so we have a few independents in Australia. Hub24 is one of them. NetWealth is another one. Um, and they are taking market share away from the likes of AMP and the banks, et cetera. Hmm. And, and that is a process that, 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 that has multi-year aspects to it. Um, recently, people got a little bit afraid because the banks are revising their agreements with those companies in that they will not get as much money um, in, in, for the cash that investors hold on those platforms. That is a long, that is a short-term headwind. Uh, it has depressed the share prices. I think that's an opportunity mm. because those companies grow fast enough to compensate for that. By the way, Peter, I forgot one company to mention is car sales. We should not forget car sales in the mm. automobile sector. Okay, fantastic, Rudy. As always, it's great to get your insights, mate. And uh, we'll catch up with you in a month's time or so. And just see how well those great companies, though you did say those three are for three to five years out. Yes, absolutely. All right, mate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Well, I'm joined now by the CEO of EML Payments, uh, Tom Cregan. Tom, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks, Peter. Uh, for people who haven't come across EML Payments and they might not be regular viewers of this show because I actually have talked about the company many times, but I probably haven't gone as deeply into what you do as, as I probably should have. So just tell us about the, the many areas where EML makes money. Yep, I mean, we're, we're at our heart, we're a payments processing business. So we run uh, you know, tech payment technology platforms that enable um, you know, various uh, corporations or governments who use our services for um, any any range of reasons. It could be the sale of gift cards, it could be a distribution of welfare uh, funds, it can be a salary packaging. I mean, we're, we're managing thousands of programs. I think it's, it's well north of 3,000 now uh, in 28 countries in at least more than a dozen industries, buy now, pay later being, being one of the more recent ones. So. We're running a technology platform that manages payments and different customers in different verticals or different niches um, will use us to achieve whatever they're looking to achieve. So if it's if it's um, expanding their market reach, they, they'll use us. If it's loyalty, they'll use us. If it's uh, just distribution of monies, simple as that, for welfare welfare monies and other things, uh, they'll, they'll use us. So that that that's the core of the business. We make money typically from charging transaction fees on, on, on those transactions, as well as uh, interchange that we're, we're earning. So every time that gets used through the, through the network, uh, we're getting a small, a small clip of interchange. So net net, you know, our average um, yield across every vertical, every customer uh, is, you know, roughly 90 basis points thereabouts yeah. on, on, you know, 20 billion of, of payment volume. Okay, give us an example, Tom, of how EML works with welfare payments. So in, in, uh, in the UK, so in particular with, um, uh, with the, uh, the company we acquired last year, uh, in, in the UK, a company called PFS, they've got over 500 um, 
government programs. Now, most of them are going to be local government or what they call, uh, you know, local market authorities. Mm. But they will they'll run all sorts of programs. They'll run welfare uh, programs. It could be, uh, you know, education assistance programs, um, food stamps, uh, paying police, um, paying people that are living in council uh, homes to, to kind of, you know, up, upgrade and upkeep their homes. So it's just a way of paying them without that money going to their bank account because that money can then be restricted. So they can pay, if they're paying someone, you know, five or 10,000 pounds to upgrade their council flat, um, they need to make sure that that five or 10,000 doesn't get spent, you know, down at the down at the racetrack. So the money goes through us and then we have a spend of a, a range of controls that make sure the money gets spent on that purpose but outside of that we you know the un is one of our customers so the un um, uh, we, we pay we have refugee payment programs that are, that are funneling money to to refugees for assistance we have programs in scandinavia uh, where uh, you know the most recent one is for released uh, prisoners from the prison system that are that are released and opposed to them just being left to fend on their you know fend fend for themselves they're uh, they're paid money by the you know, by the government, but that money is then again restricted on what they can. Yeah, okay. spend. so yeah, but I think five hundred and sixty different government programs at the moment. Yeah. Now, one of the points I think Julia Lee made to me probably a year ago is that EML was not advantaged by the coronavirus because two of your big customer bases are casinos and shopping centres. Um, is that? I I think she's right because the share price kind of reflected it, and as as reopening. Uh, trade became, you know, more believable. Your, your share price started to respond to it. Is, is that a really important part of the business? Uh, we, we never had much in casinos. We, we, it's mainly um, sports betting and and, and wagering yeah. customers. So we, we we don't have any uh, active casino uh, kind of customers. The shopping mall piece was a, was a really sizable uh, part of the business. So if I went back, you know, two years ago, um, you know, shopping mall gift cards were half the were half the business, so they were half the earnings, half half the half the revenues, um, and we had grown that business. So we'd grown through just through organic uh, and inorganic acquisition, but we 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 ended up with a I think eleven hundred um, shopping malls uh, in, in various countries. In uh, I, I remember it like it was yesterday, but in uh, in in February last year when we started hearing of this thing called COVID. And wondered what that would look like, uh, and then by the end of March, we were really starting to see that uh, uh, bite. And in uh, in April, they were all shut. So ninety-seven percent of our of our of our uh, programs closed in that gift business. the The beauty of that business, though, and it's one that um, you know over time has been oft questioned. But with gift cards, you, as the issuer, you do have this thing called called breakage, or effectively the leftover funds. That, that, that are left on on gift cards, which we would normally keep half of, and we would share half of that with the you know with the with the shopping mall with the distributor. And the reason that that revenue line exists is these cards are being sold for for nothing. So if I'm buying a hundred dollar gift card in in a mall, um, I'm paying a hundred to get a hundred dollars of value, but it still costs money to print the card. It still costs money to distribute the card to the store. So it's not free getting it. You know, getting it to the to the distribution point. So breakage exists, and we make money on that, as do our partners. 
So our accrued breakage revenue as of December, uh, March of last year was 35 million because we're selling, you know, uh, you know, several hundred million a year. So even though our unit sales went down by 97%, our cash flow didn't. Our cash flow was protected by that, um, you know, by the unwinding of those accruals. So I think that was something we knew in our back pocket would happen, um, but it's something the market now uh, got to grips with pretty quickly that the breakage is both an offensive and a defensive thing because even if you're selling nothing, uh, which we were in April and May, uh, you're still generating cash and 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 and, uh, and and that was key. So we we even though unit sales went down and they're still down. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, things are improving. I think in the US, you know, in Europe, we still see lockdowns everywhere, uh, snap lockdowns, long-term lockdowns. So our, our unit volume would still be half probably of what it was uh, pre-COVID, but the rest of the business has, has grown. Uh, you know, substantially. So it's yeah. now, whereas gift cards in malls were probably 50% of the business, um, you know, today they'd be 20. So we've just managed to, to hedge the risk a bit and, and kind of have more of a balance in the, in the revenue line. But is, is it fair to, to think that if in a year's time, um, the shopping world is, is getting back to normal, that should be a nice tailwind for the company? Yeah, it should be because really the the, it's almost one one um, uh, replaces the other. So this year, uh, we've as malls are closed, um, yes, you can't sell anything, but nor can they be redeemed. So breakage rates have actually gone up mm. this year because of the high redemption. Now, if customers want them extended, we do extend them. So we've we've done that for you know thousands of people in in Europe, for example. So if 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 people call us, they can extend them. It's not a it's it's, it's just typically not something that you would do when on average it's $2 a card. You know, I think people have got more, more, uh, more things on their mind than $2 on a, you know, on a, on a gift card. But, um, but this year, you know, we would expect the volumes to recover on the, on the unit. So our breakage rates will probably go down mm. as, as malls open and social distancing uh, rules change and, and crowds can get back into, into property. Um, but our volumes will go up, will go up too. So, you know, I think, if we recovered from, you know, from we're fifty percent down on where we were, uh, you know, pre-COVID, so that would be, um, you know, it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's it's ten to fifteen in revenue thereabouts that that we would expect to kind of flow back. Okay. You know. So, so the, the market got excited about an acquisition you um, talked about last week. Tell us about that and what kind of implications it's going to have for the bottom line. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a uh, I think it's a great little business. It's not an accretive business. That's the first one we've bought that is really about product uh, reach more, more than anything else. And uh, but no immediate accretion. Like it, 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 it you know, it's euro. It's, it's about you know twelve and a half million, twelve million Aussie revenue, and a million and a bit Aussie EBITDA. But we're going to reinvest all of that so into into sales. So it won't make anything for a couple of years. But it's a business in, 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 in what's called open banking, which has been um, uh, on, the US, on the European radar since 2018. And it's really a, in, in Europe and other countries um, led by regulation to try to get more competition into the, into the payments space. Mm. And so for us, um, uh, you know, it, it enables, so in Australia, I could send money 
uh, from my NAB account to your bank accounts, and I could get that done, you know, pretty quickly, and I get that done seamlessly. But we've got pretty terrific banking infrastructure in Australia to enable that to happen. Um, in Europe, where you've got five thousand banks, and in America, where you've got five thousand banks, uh, it's far more cumbersome, and you're having to use the SWIFT network and things like that that might cost you forty dollars. Uh, they've got FX components to them. So open banking in Europe is really the ability for me to send you money in real time uh, instantly. Yeah. Now the benefit for that for uh, for it's really not a it's not a not a, uh, a consumer to consumer thing. It's more of a consumer to merchant uh, proposition. So if if um, all the all the uh, technology and, and regulatory that underpins it is one thing, but to you as a consumer, what will happen is you'll walk into a store, uh, in, in, you know, in the in the UK or in Europe here too, at some point, and you'll have a range of options. And that'll be, I, I want to buy those jeans using, you know, Afterpay or Zip, uh, my credit card, my debit card, or simply pay with my bank. Mm. And that will be all it is. And you're going to click that to pay with my bank because it'll be a choice for you to just pay it from your bank. And, and the payment provider being us is just going to take that straight out of your bank account and put that straight into the merchant's bank account. Mm. The benefit for the merchant is uh, yeah, instant cash flow as opposed to a credit card where they might be paid the following day. So they get an instantaneous benefit there. They'll get it at lower cost because they might pay, you know, 1.2, 1.5% um, on a credit card fee because credit card fees have risks. They've got risks of fraud and risks of charge back and people saying that, hang on, my credit card details were stolen and what have you. But mm. with, with open banking, I'm looking into your, with your consent, I'm looking into that balance in real time. I know exactly how much money's there and I'm taking it out and it's cleared in real time and I'm sending it to the merchant in real time. So by comparison, you know, as opposed to paying, uh, you know, one to one and a half percent, it could be 10 basis points to 30 or 40 basis points. Mm. So the merchant will drive acceptance because for the merchant, it'll be a way of reducing their, their yeah. cost. And it seems to me the younger generation who's very suspicious of um, credit cards uh, and, and use debit cards in their own life will probably like the idea of this. I think so. I mean, it, 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 the, the, it, the value, I mean, I always think you kind of follow the money to some degree on, on these things. So the companies that are in this space that have been in there for a while, um, you know, their valuations are uh, stratospheric to, to, to call it that. Um, but there's a lot of serious money that's gone in there, not only from, uh, you know, private equity, but also from, uh, you know, from large payment businesses, the PayPal's of the world, the MasterCard of the world, the Visa's of the world, uh, because they see this, they see where this trend is going. And this trend in Europe, uh, the regulatory framework came in in 2018. The first payments really only started uh, about a year and a bit ago, January last year. Um, it's a 10-year, you know, it's just going to be a fundamental shift of, of the way people pay. Mm. The US is a little bit different. It, 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 it's it's the almost open banking. They don't really have true open banking. Uh, they have more of what they call a screen scraping model. So I would uh, have access to your account but I'm, I'm looking at a screen. I'm not really looking at the underlying number to see is that the, the real balance, but it's close enough. Um, and then in Australia, there are a couple of really uh, small, um, I wouldn't say small, they're, they're certainly uh, burgeoning uh, businesses, but they're privately held uh, companies in this open banking space. Mm. Um, and 
it's a very similar thing. The regulatory, regulatory land, landscape changed on 1 July last year. The first real payment volumes kind of start clicking through uh, the mid of 2022. And that's when we'll start to see that, you know, really kick off as well. So, um, yeah, for this, the reaction to the, to, the, to the announcement was good because it's not, um, A, it's not accretive in the immediate sense and B, open banking in Australia isn't really uh, here, right? So, uh, you know, so fund managers aren't that familiar with it. But in a couple of years' time, they're going to be pretty familiar with it because it's going to be it's going to be seen in a lot of, lot of different retailers. Yeah, and I, I like the fact that you're diversifying your sources of revenue, and that's a, a good thing as well. Tom, thanks for joining us on the program. We look forward to your success in the future. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Well, we've been talking about stocks and trying to make money out of stocks, but there are other ways you can make money. Paul Miliotis come from M Squared Capital. And these guys are actually in the property market, but they are providing alternative ways of trying to get a better return on your savings. Uh, Paul, great to see you. Thank you, Peter. Why don't you explain to people what you guys do? So M Squared Capital, Peter, is a private credit provider, otherwise known as a non-bank lender. So what we do is we match investors who have money with borrowers that need money. Mm. Um, importantly, we provide our investors with monthly returns, targeting give or take a 7% net return to them, paid monthly every month. Mm. Okay, 7% is a lot of return. Mm -hmm. And people watching this say, hang on, term deposits are only what, half a percent. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you're more risky than a term deposit. But do you want to talk about the level of risk involved? Look, I think you, you can never put anything outside well, at the same risk profile as a, as a term deposit. Term yeah. deposit yeah. So what we do is we generally lend um, our borrowers no more than 65% of the asset value. So simply what that will mean is for our investors to lose money, the property prices will need to drop by 30 odd percent or 35 percent before their capital is at risk. Mm. In saying that, we, we do mitigate risk in some very definitive ways. Mm. We only lend um, our borrowers on the eastern seaboard of Australia, so yeah. Brisbane, Melbourne, predominantly Sydney. Yeah. Um, we don't lend specialised um, against specialised securities, so no pubs, no clubs, no bowling alleys. Mm. It's generally homogenised product. Stuff that can be sold really easy and stuff that can be valued very easily. Definitely. So when we look at where property markets go, mm. it's more important for us to say, well, in a catastrophic event, mm. if in the unlikely event we needed to take possession of the property and recover the money for our investors, mm. will our investors get their capital back and will they get their interest back? Now, historically in the Sydney market, in a homogenised property that, uh, that you said, mm. we've seen no more than a market drop of... 20%, mm. 18% give or take. Mm. So we can take COVID as a very good example in our business. Um, all of our distributions were paid, no capital was lost and all interest was recovered. Mm. So when we look at it, it's very important to understand in a catastrophic shock, will our investors actually get their money back? Mm. Um, let, let's walk through an example, mm -hmm. okay? I'm uh, a businessman and I want to borrow $2 million for a project. A project that you guys, I guess, would look at to see whether you think it's a good project. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got a $10 million property. Mm -hmm. well, how do you take security? How do you make sure there's some security okay, behind so it? So first of all, 
in that situation, we definitely consider it. It's a business pur purpose yeah. with a property as a collateral. Mm. So we would lend in that instance on a $10 million property, no more than $6.5 million. Mm. That business so if I only want two, it's a it's fantastic security behind a loan. Exactly. So yeah. when we say about risk mm. and where you return for risk, we are a weighted risk business. Mm. So when you are borrowing less, the return for our, our investor generally will be less. Mm. So it's a risk rating. Mm. Um, when you're borrowing 20% of an asset value based in Sydney, mm. you would say that the, 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 lo the potential loss for an investor would be much lower than if you'd be lending 80% of that value for argument. So, so as a borrower, you'd charge me less because I'm a really safe conveyance, coming 10 million borrowing too. And the flip side is the people who put money into lend to me via you, mm -hmm. they get a smaller return as well. But that means that the potential customers with you can actually work out how much risk they want to take and therefore how much return they want to get. Well, that's a very, very good point. So in our business, it is, is it the right point. Well, it is. It is for us. Yeah. So for M Squared Capital, we're a bit of a different fund in that we're known. And I know you don't like this word, but a contributory mortgage fund. No, I hate that word. I know. Does anyone know what he's talking about? I know. Okay. So what that means is other people would have heard crowdfunding for argument's yes. sake. But yeah. what we do and when we say we match investors and borrowers, we would for argument's sake go to our investor pool and put to them that specific investment opportunity. Yep. I speak about my father-in-law mm. a lot on this show. Yeah. He doesn't want to hear the word construction for argument's yeah. sake. Or contributory or mortgage. Contri or contributory mortgage. So just going back to that point, yeah. we like our investors to be intelligent investors mm. in saying they need to understand. And sophisticated investors. Sophisticated, too. but it's more than that. Yeah. They need to understand what they're getting themselves into. Yeah. There's too many stories in the marketplace at the moment mm. where people have blindly given their money and then it hasn't turned out the way they wanted it to Correct. turn out. Yeah. With a contributory mortgage fund like ours, it's simple. Mm. There's a definitive project you're investing in. The project is a property-based security model. Mm. So you've got a residential house, a commercial building, um, you might have an industrial property. Mm. Something's easy sellable. Easily sellable, but the, it's defined. Mm. We are lending 65% of that value. This is what your market mm. return is. This is the borrower profile. Do you like that particular investment or not? Mm. That's what contributory is. Mm. It's a defined investment into a defined structure. Yeah. You mentioned your father-in-law, but you haven't finished the story. My father-in-law is a very conservative investor. Hmm. He doesn't want to see anything that is got a construction flavour. He just wants vanilla, hmm. existing properties with a nice vanilla return and hmm. low risk. But I've got touch about other people that we have as investors. Hmm. We've got very astute property developers mm. that are not doing property developments now mm. that love development, that understand that when you're lending money for construction, mm. there's a bigger risk profile and their returns are higher, but mm. they understand construction mm. and they want us to provide those type of opportunities to them. Yeah. So I suppose what I was touching with my father-in-law on the contributory side of things mm. is that you have the choice to choose what you like. Mm. You're not just pulled into one asset class that says, I can give me your money mm. and I can invest it under these particular parameters. I can do construction, I can do sh shopping centers, I can do regional. You have a lot more control over where your money goes. You are intelligently making your own decisions right. with your money. Okay. That, that's, that's the point. All right, other people are wondering, well, 
how safe is my money? Like, like what kind of governance controls are over what you guys do? Look, I think any successful business is bigger than the people that are running the business. Mm. So Paul and I, we're, we, we love our business. Um, we're very um, passionate, passionate about the business. Mm. Um, but if one of us, for you know, unfortunately passes away or, for a, or leaves the business, it's very important to understand what happens with the security. So mm. corporate governance is very important. We've got external custody, um, perpetual um, managers, managers that side mm. of the business. Um, we don't touch any of the money. The money goes to the custody. I think that's very important. Mm. Whenever you hear some bad stories in the media, it's because money was not handled externally. Mm. Um, you've got external registry services, so you're getting your monthly statements done by external parties. Um, we have our internal controls and managers. We've got internal um, lawyers in-house. We've got internal accountants in-house. Mm. But importantly, I think you need to look at the directors of the business, um, their track record. Um, you need to say how the money is being handled mm. and also, which I think is one of the most important things, what are you investing in? What is the underlying security if something goes wrong? Yeah. In our case, it's simple. It's property only mm. um, and it's always we can rely on that to recover monies. Okay. That's Paul Miliotis from N Square Capital. <laughs> Well, I'm catching up with Ying Yi and Cheng from Coolabar Capital. Now, we all want to know what's going to happen to interest rates. Ying Yi, great to see you. Great to see you, Pete. Okay, let's start off with the question that most of my viewers care about is, do you really believe that central banks can keep interest rates as low as they are now until 2023 or even maybe 2024? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the key concern for a lot of central banks and the only reason why they would start increasing or hiking rates would be largely because um, of inflation. So at the moment, we're, we're not really seeing any inflation. Um, for us to really get start seeing signs of inflation, we probably need wage inflation, which, by the way, is fairly anemic. Um, wage inflation is under 2%. Um, so we really sort of need wage inflation. How do we get wage inflation? Well, we need unemployment down. We need a tighter labour market. So, you know, um, when we have a tighter labour market, excuse me, a tighter labour market, then um, we will start seeing that wage inflation. But we're a fair way off yet. Um, so the technical term would be the non-accelerating um, rate of unemployment. Uh, and that rate, according to Lowe, is, you know, uh, when I say low, uh, RBA governor feel low, is probably somewhere in, you know, possibly below four hmm. something percent. And we're some way off there yet as well. So, you know, I, I think it's <clears throat> definitely conceivable that the RBA and other central banks aren't likely to hike rates anytime soon. No. However, that obviously doesn't stop uh, interest rate markets pricing in future rate hikes. Um, and that's what we've seen in the bond market. So the 10-year government bond yield has moved quite dramatically since February, um, and that's because they're taking into account inflation in the future um, and therefore rate hikes in the future. Yeah, but what, what duration uh, of bond uh, rates is more relevant to home loans and fixed rate loans? It's not 10 years, surely. It's more 
shorter term, isn't it? No, it's not. It's not. It's not ten year. It's it's the cash rate, and that cash rate isn't necessarily going to run away anytime soon. Um, so yeah, any sort of mortgage rates price off that cash rate. And however, you know, at the same time, you know, fixed rates have been very good. Um, so the banks have been able to offer extremely competitive and, um, you know, dare I say it, probably the lowest fixed rate mortgages mm. in history. Yeah. Um, and that's care of the term funding facility, the TFF, which the RBA introduced last year in response to the pandemic. Um, and that's allowed the banks to borrow off the RBA out to three years at 0.1%. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, the banks have been able to extend that sort of lower cost of borrowing to, you know, mortgage, to, yeah, mortgage borrowers. Okay. Because you spend your entire life thinking about interest rates, um, let me ask this question then. We've seen some banks that were once upon a time offering four-year fixed rates at under 2%. They've now taken that away and they're doing it for either two or three years, but not four. So what are the banks thinking when they did that? Yeah, good question. Well, maybe the expectation for them was that the RBA would extend that term funding facility. Now, the RBA has definitely decided not to extend that. Uh, so that rolls off in June. Yeah. Uh, and what, how I would respond to that would be, well, firstly, the banks haven't needed the liquidity. They're awash with liquidity. So they haven't needed to tap this term funding facility. Um, and given that the RBA doesn't see the need to continue extending that, then um, they haven't. Um, and hence, as a result, uh, you're not seeing as many of those sort of four-year sort of promises. Okay. The thing that I get worried about is some really smart people like you, and I interviewed Hamish Douglas during the week, and you all seem to think that the Reserve Bank is going to be able to hold, and, and, and the Fed, hold interest rates down for... For like two, 2024 is like really four years away. It's this year, next year. Like, if the boom is really, really big, you know, you, 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 I want you to put your, your real macroeconomic hat on here. If the boom is really big and inflation kicks, they're going to have to raise interest rates, surely. And yes, of course. Yeah. Of course, okay. when they do, hmm. they, they will. They yeah. will do so. I mean, so the magnitude. So the magnitude. Yeah. So the magnitude of the boom going forward is going to be the critical factor. Yes, of course. Uh, but we need to see those signs of inflation first. Yeah. Okay. When well, we do get that. Yeah. Well, one thing I say, unemployment today came out down another 0.2%. What are we at? 5.6%. That labour market is tightening. But as you say, we've got to get to 4% before the Reserve Bank. We're thinking about raising interest rates. But we're heading in the right direction for a bit of inflation. I mean, yeah, the economy is doing well, uh, touch wood. Uh, Australia is faring quite well. So, you know, we we benefit from having, you know, a strong commodity sort of sector and we're, you know, relatively compared to the rest of the world, um, relatively unscathed yeah. uh, given COVID in terms of its impact on our economy. Okay. And, you know, we've got an RBA that's willing to, you know, do quantitative easing to support the government bond market and it'll allow the government as a result to create more infrastructure and more jobs here. Okay. Now, before we wrap up, I have a few inquiries from people who just don't understand the Switzer High Yield Fund, which you guys, 
manage for um, Contango Asset Management, which I have a, a, a small share in. Um, and I selected you guys because you're really good at what you do. So the Switzer High Yield Fund, what do you invest in? It is an investment grade bond universe. Hmm. So it is, we're talking about bonds issued by the government. So the state governments like New South Wales, Victoria, for example, and it mainly invests in bank bonds and hmm. to a certain extent, bank hybrids as well. Okay. So it's not as safe as term deposits, but you're trying to make it safe-ish given the fact that term deposits are paying you nothing. So you're looking at other stuff that you guys think is relatively safe and are paying better amounts. And so what are you hoping to achieve then on an annual basis in terms of your, your yield? Well, the cash, well, the return objective is cash, which is 0.1% plus one half to three percent after fees. Yeah. Uh, but I, I can tell you um, some of the bonds that we can invest in in that portfolio rank above deposits. So they're safer than a bank deposit. Oh. You know, that's not true of the whole All portfolio. Of mm. um, and also the key point of difference is that, you know, the bonds that we trade are high, like super active. So Coolabar in general is trading 70 to 100 times a day on average $150 million a day. If you wanted to take your money out of a term deposit, obviously not an at-call cash account. If you want to take it out of a term deposit, there's, you know, a 30-day notice period. Mm. Okay, now the history, even though this is new with my name on it, Switzer High Yield Fund, the, the actual style, the actual investment strategy you guys have been doing before, what's the track record like? Very strong. I mean, you can go onto our website, www.coolabarcapital.com. Uh, we launched our first strategy or first fund in 2012. Uh, so all of the historical returns of the various strategies are there and we're currently running 27 to 28 portfolios, including the Switzer High Yield Fund. Right. And so if you guys have a real good year, you'd be expecting to get around 3.1%. Uh, a bad year might be 1.5 plus 0.1, 1.6. Yes. But, you know, as always, um, you know, past performance is not a guide to future returns right. and, you know, one should always read the product disclosure statement to better right. understand the risk. Well, put it this way, if, if you guys don't do it, I'll often come up to Bondi Junction and rip your bloody arms off, as Auntie Jack used to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't do that. But I won't do that. <laughs> but, okay. All right. So one last thing. People ask me, well, how, what is the fee for this? I, I got 0.7%, but is that, that, that is actually taken off before the actual return is actually announced. Yeah, so the net return is after we meet the return objective and also after management fee. Okay. So that's that's the net return, but um, we, we charge, are you talking about the performance fee? Mm. No, no, just the actual uh, annual fee. 0.7%. Oh yeah, so the, the net return that the net return objective is cash plus one half to three percent. Yeah. And finally, when is the income paid? Quarterly. Okay, great. Fantastic. Yin Yi, great seeing you. Talk to you in a few weeks' time.
Join Paul Rickard, Hamish Douglas and myself and a range of other financial experts as we share with you key strategies to help you grow your portfolio at our 2021 Virtual Investor Strategy event taking place on the 27th and the 28th of April. Please join us. We are currently offering free registration to this event as well as a bonus seven-day free trial to the Switzerland Report for anyone that registers. So get in quick and secure your spot via the link in the description below.